Hello, and welcome to the Bloodstream Podcast, a show serving the greater bleeding disorders community brought to you by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. I am your patient advocate and host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am your healthcare advocate, nonprofit nerd, and other host, Amy Board, reminding you to please speak with a healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. On today's show, we are joined by Greg Blamey, a physiotherapist from Winnipeg, Canada, and the lead investigator and author of Sexual Issues in People with Hemophilia, Awareness and Strategies for Overcoming Communication Barriers. Hardly sounds relevant. Baller topic. Don't even know why we had him on. Topic baller. And he turned out to be a fantastic guest. You know, sometimes they're writers, right? You have no idea. They're journalists. You have no idea. Not journalists. Even like clinical people. Clinical people. It's always a crapshoot. You're like, I don't know if the personality is going to be there. Well, you know, we might get like five minutes of anything maybe usable. This guy nailed it. So much so that we were like, we don't need two people to speak on this topic anymore. (laughs) We just need Greg because he crushed it. Yeah. He might become a regular on this show. We loved Greg so much. Not not a joke. Um, So that's coming up in just a little bit. An interview that you, Amy Board, ended up having to play producer on. (laughs) I didn't even play producer. I literally just had technical issues and like had to turn my camera off the whole time. I'm not even in the interview, but I was in there. (sighs) You, you got to come in at the end when we were off mic to get all of your energy out at the yeah, end. Yeah, and I had anxiety about it. And listeners, dear listeners, guess what my technical problem was? I just forgot to turn on my microphone. That's it. It was a button. It happens. <laughs> it does happen. We like to pretend it doesn't and that we're past all of that professional. We're not. It anyway, happens. it was nice. It happens. Uh, so we'll have that interview. That's a bit later. Before that, I'm going to share some highlights from my recent hemophilia treatment center comp visit. Not Love bragging. Love this. Not bragging. Love it. Calendar highlight for all of us every year, hemos. <laughs> and I will Nothing tell you more like about it. Nothing like inside scoop from other people's medical appointments. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like it. And we will wrap today's episode <laughs> with the latest from our Let's Talk Mental Health segment featuring our beloved Joshua Sterling Bragg, a segment that's focused on growing evolving and taking baby steps and features nail polish. Wait, what? It features nail polish. Great. We got all that and more on today's episode. Welcome to Bloodstream. Listeners, as always, thank you for joining Patrick and I here on Bloodstream. Honestly, seriously, seriously, for seriously. Serious, this is we serious. We so appreciate each and every thank one you. of you. And if you haven't already, please hit that subscribe button what on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you, you listen to, to podcasts. We say this every week. But honestly, the subscribe button is legit. It like it's so then you'll just get it. It'll just, it just drop in your little guy. Like, I didn't and you don't even have to think know. about it. And I have a road trip today. And look It'll at that help an us. hour and ten minutes where I'm just gonna love what yeah. I learn. You I mean, you, literally, don't you learn stuff on this show, listeners? I think you do. Anyway, episodes of Bloodstream can be listened to also shared directly from the Bloodstream Media Facebook page. Wow. Everybody's on Facebook. No one's Amazing. not on Facebook, unfortunately. Well, and as always, if you've got suggestions for topics or guests, if you have questions for Patrick or myself, ping us on social media or email us at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. Also, it's a great way to inquire about casting opportunities because we're always casting. Please reach out to me. I'm taking on all of the casting stuff because I like you guys best. Wow. I'm going (laughs) to not take the bait. I'm not taking the bait. I do want to give shout outs though because we've gotten some really good suggestions and I have to admit I'm a little behind on implementing them into some of our show prep and agendas. So, for those who have been s- sending stuff and hear this call to action and are like, I told you about the Shabba-Baba and you haven't talked about it yeah. yet. I know that. We will get to the Shabba-Baba. I, I just, that's on me. That's on me. But thank you. And please keep them coming. Yes, keep them coming. 
Listeners, before we jump into the meat of the episode, I also do want to remind you that the Bloodstream Podcast is made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Takeda. Yes, that's right. Takeda. Takeda. Takeda's got this website, bleedingdisorders.com, where you can learn all about Takeda's resources for and commitment to the Bleeding Disorders community. Takeda believes in a world free of bleeds, Amy Board. <laughs> I'm for it. Oh, okay, great. And they're dedicated more than ever, even more than in the last episode, in their efforts to offer a wide range of programs and support to help patients throughout their treatment journey, wherever on that journey they may be. You, listener, can learn more by simply visiting bleedingdisorders.com. One more time, that's bleedingdisorders.com. And for their founding and ongoing support of the Bloodstream Podcast, I would just like to say, thanks, Takeda. Thanks, Takeda. Amy, I went to the doctor. You, no, you didn't go to the doctor. You went to the HTC. Boom, spoken like someone who knows. Different. That is a different, different kind baby. of day. I have to say, I sometimes fool myself into thinking, oh, that's right, adult hemophilia treatment center comp day. This <laughs> will be easier, breezier. I think I may have even sent you a message that was like, hey, you I, did. I, I'll make that meeting at 11. I may need to call in. Yeah, you did not. I was two hours past no, that meeting. Yeah. That meeting wasn't yeah. happening. I didn't make the next meeting. It's a marathon at the treatment centers. <laughs> so I don't know, One, maybe one year I'll learn that these actually go longer than I want them to. But, um, you know, for those out there, um, a lot of you know how these go, right? You meet the hematologist, you're meeting with the nurse, the physical therapist, you're going over updates and stuff. You know, my ankle thing has sort of been my big yeah. ongoing story. And I met with Dr. Luck, the orthopedic surgeon, again, few, four weeks ago now. I got my second shot, cortisone, four weeks ago. Oh, so, congr- yeah, I'm okay. you know, moving around like I'm uh, just a fluid guy out here. Um, so, checking in on, on what the various kind of next steps may be with Dr. Kwan, getting her take, talking through treatment stuff talking about some slight adjustments, um, all very good, testing out range of motion and going through stuff with Dr. Cindy Bailey, shouts out there. But there was something that not related to my health that I learned at this appointment and was like, how have I not heard this before? And then I was like, should I have heard this before? Am I, yeah. am I derelict in my duty? Have <laughs> oh, I not God. heard this before with the science fair and yeah. the global hemophilia report and whatever no, else? And all the things, you're always in am all Am I de facto science degree? Yeah. Um, not in science. You have a theater I, degree. I do not have a theater degree. I have an acting degree. Oh! <laughs> it is very narrow. So this was my big learning that AAV gene therapy, heard of it. So for both heme, hemate and factor Wait. eight, factor nine, yes. heme and heme B, in both cases, the vector, as we know, travels to the liver. Right. And then cells within the liver recognize, hey, vector, extract the genetic code, read that as though a blueprint, and then from that, produce the proteins that we are not naturally producing as people with hemophilia. Here's the wrinkle that I was like, again, how am I just learning this? (gasps) Within the liver are cells called hepatocytes. Hepatocytes make up like 75, 80% of the liver's mass. They have a bunch of different responsibilities with protein synthesis and metabolism. And one of the things that they naturally do is produce factor nine. So when the hepatocytes, which is the target of these vectors, recognize, oh, vector, oh, factor nine, genetic code, cool, read it, read it, make factor nine. Right. That's what they do. And that's what they they would do were it not for hemophilia. Okay. Factor eight, however, is not made in the hepatocytes. Factor eight is made in the endothelial cells. Patrick, endothelial cells, isn't that skin? Uh, Hypothetical person. Yes, that's true. And endothelial cells also, as I just learned, are uh, surround things such as the liver. 
So there are endothelial cells. Wait a minute, wait a minute. They surround the outside of the liver or surround the lining of the inside of the liver? Do we know? Do we care? My guess is the latter. I don't know. We should care. Neither of us are scientists. But (laughs) Both have theater degrees. The big takeaway, (laughs) mine's an acting degree. Okay, great. I spent more time acting, Amy. I don't Mine's know where I'm going with that. musical theater. Yeah, I didn't, I couldn't read sheet music. So I was like, <laughs> I got to get a one, yeah. one word degree. Yeah. yeah. So the hepatocytes make factor nine when they get the vector that says, hey, make this kind of make factor nine, they do it. Factor eight's made in endothelial cells and yet the vector is targeting hepatocytes. The hepatocytes then see the factor eight genetic code. And while they do not produce factor eight, my understanding right. is- while they don't produce factor eight naturally, it's then like on them to produce to like it or like to like out. tell the endothelial cells. It's like I sent you something to get to, you know, to, to, to Kay. It was like, well, hopefully it'll make it to Kay. I sent it to Amy. Kay's one of our editors. Kay's was that for, for everyone else. <laughs> that's a part of this conversation. <laughs> that's who I'm referring to. But you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I, so um, that suddenly kind of made me think a little more. Well, that Maybe that has something to do with what we're seeing in the data and the variance right. and the and the lack of durability. And that's not that's not the cell that right. does that job. Right. So that just seemed really, I don't know. I want to ask more nerdy people we talk to about this now, but I was kind of stunned sitting in that yeah. appointment being like, how am I just learning it? That seems kind of that seems it like seems, big information. That seems like big information. Did Dr. Kwan say like that's why we're seeing uh, it, it's tricky, I guess. Is that she suggested? That's one of the theories, and oh, you know, I want to be careful about speaking for her. Yeah, but that, like, yes. that is one of the theories for how, why we're seeing the data that we're seeing. Interesting, which logically makes sense, but it's like, and again, like one and done therapy, it's not going yeah. to the intent. I don't no. know. It just that's fascinating. Lots I of have, variables. I have right? not heard that either. Obviously, but. Uh, listeners, that was a curveball, right? You did not think that was going to come out of Who knew Patrick's about that? HTC visit. No one did. But also, no one knew that was true before I just know. now either. So look at this. We're informing people as we learn stuff. But I also, I, I'm totally, I, I, I was like, I feel like I should have known this. Um, is there anything else we need to get to before we get into the interview with my new best friend from Canada, Greg? I don't think so. I think Greg crushes it. Also, what is a physiotherapist? And is that different from a physical therapist? It feels like it because it's like a different word. Physio is different. Right, but just like Celsius and Fahrenheit. So right now when my friends in London are like, it's so hot, it's 40 degrees Celsius. I'm like, I don't know what that means. It just once again feels like, why are we using different stuff? But in any event, uh, Greg is a physiotherapist. He is the lead investigator and author of sexual issues and people with hemophilia, awareness and strategies for overcoming communication barriers. And that interview is coming up right now. Joining me now is physiotherapist Greg Blamey. Good morning, good afternoon, Greg. How are you? I am fine. Thanks very much, Patrick. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Thanks for doing this. I think this is your first podcast in bleeding disorders, if our uh, off mic chat, if I understood correctly. Is that right? First time on mic? First podcast of any kind. So I'm pretty thrilled. Wonderful. Well, uh, happy to be your first. Uh, very exciting to have you here. Um, you are your physiotherapist at the Hemophilia Treatment Center in Winnipeg, Canada. But can you give us a little bit more of your background? How did you get involved with physiotherapy, hemophilia, and then when did sexual health and bleeding disorders become a particular focus? It's sort of funny because I got involved in physiotherapy because when I was a teenager, I played a lot of sports at a high level and had a lot of injuries, and so. I had interacted with physiotherapists from a sports medicine point of view quite a bit. And I think that's what I assumed I would do once I became a physiotherapist was work within a sports medicine framework. And my career has been one unexpected 
turn of events and, and pathway change after another. Because when I finished physiotherapy school, I immediately started working in a tertiary care hospital. And because there was a gap on a, a hand surgery service that needed to be filled, I stepped into that gap. And it was a caseload that I had never considered ever working with before and found that I really loved it. And then out of the blue, a nurse appeared in my department Friday afternoon at 5 p.m. one week and said that they needed a physiotherapist to join their hemophilia clinic. And I kindly took her name and said I would give it to the department director. And she said, well, I was hoping to get somebody involved quicker than that. And I said, well, I'll, I'll give it to him on Monday morning. And she said, could, could we get it quicker than that? And I said, maybe you should tell me exactly what you are looking for, because I'm not following you. And she wanted somebody to be involved that evening at a conference that they were, that they were having <laughs> okay. in the city two hours later. And so my involvement in hemophilia care happened not only unexpectedly, but at a very rapid pace. And interestingly enough, I went to that conference two hours after meeting this nurse. She and I subsequently became fast friends and colleagues over a number of years. And uh, I was so taken by what I heard in that initial engagement with the bleeding disorders community, the patients that were there, the other professionals that were there. It sounded really intriguing. I always like to learn about things I don't know anything about. And this was something I had never really considered or heard of. And that was in 1997. And I've been part of the hemophilia clinic here at the hospital ever since. So it's really been, as I say, a very satisfying journey, but not one that was pre-planned by any stretch of the imagination. Wow. Two, two hours notice on what's become a 25-year-plus career. So how about that? So the article that was published and which spurred Amy and I to reach out to you today, it's titled Sexual Issues in People with Hemophilia, Awareness and Strategies for Overcoming Communication Barriers that you and a number of co-authors are cited for having published. Can you give us the background? What led to, to you, I believe, leading as well this particular study? Yeah. What um, really led to it was over the first sort of close to 10 years that I worked with hemophilia patients, the whole notion of sexual health and sexuality, I can honestly tell you, didn't come up in a single conversation, not amongst the colleagues within the clinic context, nor with the patients. And at, at that time, during those years, I'm ashamed to say now, looking back, that that, that didn't seem odd or wrong or, or like we were missing something. And then we had a patient who developed three successive iliopsoas or hip flexor muscle bleeds um, in a six-month period. And this was a patient that we had a challenging relationship with going into the whole process. We struggled to get information from him. We struggled to communicate with him and him with us, I think, in many ways. And so I think a lot of us were thinking that there was some kind of information being, whether it was deliberately withheld or just not thought about when we were trying to investigate these bleeds. And we realized we were in big trouble with this guy because if these bleeds continued, he was going to have permanent damage. And what ended up happening was I went into his hospital room because we did have to hospitalize him. And I shut the door and I sat on his bed and I said, there is no judgment here, but we need to know what's causing these bleeds. And he assured me he was telling the absolute truth and that he hadn't left anything out. And I said, well, then maybe we should just work backwards. And this, you have to understand, is before the days of extended half-life products. It's before the advent of any kind of pharmacokinetic assessment of, of how patients were, um, you know, metabolizing their factor product, their factor replacement. 
And I said, well, let's work backwards. When did you first notice the symptoms of your last bleed? And he said, it woke him up at three in the morning. And I said, okay, well, what happened before that? You were asleep. What did you do before that? And he detailed a very banal, sort of benign, uneventful evening. And I said, that's all you did that night was watch some television and have some snacks. And then he said, well, my girlfriend and I also had very vigorous sex. And that was the, it was like a light bulb went on. And at the, in the same moment, the light bulb went on and I felt what I'm going to say is akin to deep shame for not having thought about it before and asked specifically about those kinds of activities. And as we worked backwards then from his three previous bleeds, lo and behold, the bleeds all appeared in the middle of the middle of the night, the small hours of the morning. That's when he noticed symptoms. They all happened on the night before he would have given his next prophylaxis dose. So his troughs were at the lowest possible spot that they could be. And sexual activity was an activity of daily living for him. This was a real wake-up call, not only for us to start asking about and incorporating a whole branch of, of overall health that we had been not paying any attention to, but it also made us reflect on the way that we asked certain questions. Um, the main one being, we used to sort of say to patients, after a bleed, any bleed, that they should be restricting themselves to just their activities of daily living. And I think everybody had in their mind things like eating and bathing and getting dressed, which if that's all your life is going to include, that's not a terribly exciting life. And what we had to understand was that things like sexuality and sexual activity really are an activity of daily living for human beings. And, and, and that now had to enter into the, our heads when we started talking to people about the appropriateness or any kind of uh, restrictions that they might place on an activity of daily living. It really expanded the definition of a few things for us. So it really was a, a, a real wake-up call, I think, for our, our clinic. And then I wanted to spread that message. And that was really got, that's what got me interested in, in the whole sphere of sexual health and sexuality, because let's be clear, those are not the same thing. Can you actually distinguish that a little bit for us? What is the difference? Sure. I mean, it, to give you an example, to clarify the difference, sexual health, for example, could include everything up to and, and involving things like safer sex practice. So condom use, um, contraceptives, uh, those sorts of things. Whereas as a physiotherapist, I am an expert in the musculoskeletal function of the human body. I am interested in the physical act of how our bodies respond to, are involved in the positions that we get into and how our bodies tolerate those positions and the, the physicality of sex. And so sexual health, I think, is the broadest term we could use. Sexuality can include a whole lot of more activity-based, I'll say, descriptors within it that is, is much more akin to the kind of expertise that I bring to the table as a physiotherapist. Gotcha. Okay, appreciate that. That's very interesting. So the Sexual Health Strategies for Effective Communication pilot program. It was trialed in Canada and aimed to assess healthcare provider readiness and ability to discuss sexual health issues with people with hemophilia and test communication tools to facilitate these conversations. So how did you go about that assessment and what methods did you use and what did you learn? Right. What we sort of determined was that what we had experienced at our clinic was likely 
not to be any different than the experiences that the rest of the clinics in Canada and beyond our borders were experiencing. And we figured if we were not paying attention to sexuality and sexual health, there was a pretty good chance that our colleagues at other comprehensive care clinics weren't doing it either. And so it started off, first of all, very informally. Uh, there are a lot of, you know, in those days, pre-pandemic, face-to-face meetings that would happen, you know, between the clinics from across the country and and literally kind of water cooler chats. I would ask colleagues, not only physios, but nurses and physicians and social workers and other people uh, that I was acquainted with from the other clinics across the country. Is this something you guys have been dealing with? And If you have, do you have strategies? What do you do? How do you approach it? And there was a consistent answer, which was, you know, crickets chirping. I mean, nobody, no, everybody said, no, we don't talk about that. And and what was even more interesting, I guess, to use one word for it, is that several colleagues said, well, patients don't want to talk about that kind of stuff. And I said, well, how do you know? I mean, did they tell you that? And People said no. So there were a lot of assumptions being made, I think, about what was and what was not fair game for discussion within the context of the hemophilia comprehensive care clinic. And that's the term that we, that's, that came from us, not the patients. Comprehensive care is something that we said we were offering. And, you know, if you take the broadest definition of that word, there's a whole branch of, of, of health care and, and overall emotional and physical and psychological health that is impacted by sexual health that we weren't addressing. And so knowing that the other clinics weren't really involved and finding out through those informal means that there was a great deal of discomfort approaching this topic, we figured what people needed was strategies. People needed some kind of an assist to open the door to the conversation. I had already published at that point uh, a small book called Sexual Health and Hemophilia, Preventing Joint and Muscle Injuries, which is purely based, again, on on the physical elements of sex. But what it does is it lists in a, in a graphic format, and by that I don't mean shocking graphic, I mean just pictorial, um, as well as a, 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 there are charts, there are written descriptions, there are pictures of a couple engaged in, in sexual activity in different positions. And then overlaid on that is a means for a person with hemophilia to compare those positions to their own body and where their target joints are, where their most problematic muscles and joints are. And it allows a couple to choose a position that is going to put the most minimal amount of stress on the joints and muscles of that person with a bleeding disorder where they have the most difficulty. And so when that book got published, I found that people were very grateful and thankful and using it as a physical tool to open the conversation. Here I have this book, it relates to sexual activity, and then the conversation broadened from there, and it included, you know, a lot of things that the patients or the or the loved ones and the the partners might have brought up. So the study that you referred to was sort of the same thing, in that we were looking for providing tools to our colleagues that they could use to open conversations, and we partnered with an institute in Calgary, nothing to do with bleeding disorders, but everything to do with sexual health. And that was a really great addition to the team of researchers on the study because that brought, you know, that took us out of our own heads in terms of the bleeding disorders um, community into experts in sexual health writ large, regardless of, of any kind of chronic disease state. And that was where some of the tools came from. So in answer to your question, we piloted it with a clinic in Calgary. We asked the staff there to self-assess on a questionnaire, their readiness, their comfort level 
in discussing sexual health and sexuality with their patients prior to the pilot. We had them redo the questionnaire after the pilot to see what had changed. We used a lot of case study-based scenarios and group discussion and feedback after the case scenarios had been done to determine what worked, what didn't work in terms of communication strategies. And then we were provided with some tools like the, the, the head, heart, body tool, which comes straight from sexual health research. That's not a hemophilia tool. That's from sexuality and sexual health. And that, again, was a takeaway for the, the clinic staff who were part of the pilot to go back to their clinics and then use with their patients and, and their families as a means of opening doors to discussion on this topic. Can you tell us a little more about that tool? I was intrigued by it in reviewing the article. What exactly is the head, heart, body decision-making tool? It's meant for the, the person who's going to be having sex. That's who it's meant for. It's a self-assessment tool, it's so described. And it's, it's really to help you assess what your readiness to engage in sexual activity is. And that could be a teenager or a young person who is thinking about having sex for the first time. It could be a person who is recovering from an illness or, a, in this case, context with hemophilia, perhaps a bleeding episode, and they are looking at starting to re-engage in sexual activity after an injury or a surgery or something like that. So it's really a tool to help you assess your readiness for sex. And it looks at three different areas, your head, your heart, and your body. So it's really what are your thoughts about re-engaging or engaging in sex? What are your feelings about it? And is your body ready for it? So you start off with your head and you ask yourself questions such as, or, or something like, you know, why is it that I'm doing this? Why am I thinking of doing this? Do I agree with, with what's going on, the situation that's in front of me? Does this fit with my values? Uh, you really think about whether or not what you're about to undertake is something that you, from a cognitive perspective, I suppose, are you ready for it? And then you go to your heart, which is really your feelings. And that's that's more about whether or not you feel safe in this engagement with the other person. Does this make, is this, is this going to be, is this something that you're happy about? Is this going to make you, does this make you feel good? Does this make you feel excited or does this make you feel nervous? It allows you to assess what it's making you feel as opposed to what you might think. And then you really have to turn to your body and say, is my body ready for what I'm about to do? Do I have the physical capacity to do this activity with this person in this way. And it really just, I think, simplified it for people into three areas to consider. And, and if you see red flags for yourself in one or more of those areas, it's, it's a message to sort of pause. It's not, it's not saying don't do it. It's a message to just give a little bit more thought, perhaps, about the area that seems to be the sticking point, whether it's what you're thinking, what you're feeling, or whether or not physically you're really ready for what you're about to undertake. So what did you find in terms of tools and strategies? What seemed to be particularly effective? What raised unexpected conversations? What would give us a little insight there if you could? I think what really was, was the aha moment for everybody was that it was an uncomfortable look in the mirror. And it, was a, it, was, it really made people reflect as professionals on what they were projecting onto their patients as the patients not being comfortable discussing this when in fact it really was the professionals themselves who were uncomfortable bringing it up. And it really brought this right in front of people's faces. And as I say, it was, it made you look at yourself in the mirror and in a very honest way say, is this, is this really from the patient side of the engagement that these conversations are not happening? 
because when we did the case-based scenarios and people really had to then, it was role-playing and case-based scenarios and professionals were now on the other side of the equation because in these case sort of role plays, they were the part of the patient or of the partner. And they realized that they really would have wanted to have the information and they wanted to know what the professionals had to offer in terms of answering these questions. And when they put themselves in the shoes of their patients, they really realized that, no, it's, it's really coming from our end that these conversations have not been welcomed. They haven't been invited. And yeah, it, it really was, a, I think, a wake-up call. I think that was the most interesting thing is that people left that pilot really energized and excited to learn more about their patients. Because the, the thing about hemophilia clinics and other clinics like it, and I think this was part of why sexual health conversations were difficult, Everybody knows everybody really well. I mean, these are lifespan clinics. So you're, you're a child and you grow up you know, going to see your hemophilia nurse from the time you're you know, old enough to remember. Well, now you're going through puberty and this is the person that you have to talk to about starting to have sex with, with your partner, with a girlfriend, with a boyfriend, with another person, with a group of people. And it sort of feels like you're talking to another mother in a way, because this is someone that you have a somewhat intimate relationship with. And from the other side of the equation, nurses and other professionals at the clinics who've been working with these patients for a long time, again, this is, a, a, this is an evolution of conversation that, that feels a little bit challenging because it's a new field of endeavor that your patients are, 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 are you know, kind of exploring and one that's very personal. And, and it, I think, proved that was really difficult for a lot of people the professionals. And so it really, people were excited to go and sort of be able to learn about their patients in a whole different way because they now felt confident to have the conversations. So what happens next? What are the next steps? How do we actually see to it that the the, the takeaways, the conclusions, the results of this work permeates into other clinics and spurs multidisciplinary teams to actually adopt the kinds of strategies and tools that you've described? What we certainly want to do, and the pandemic, of course, over the last three years, this has really put the brakes on the process in terms of this pilot program being rolled out to more clinics across the country, because this is something that really does not lend itself, this pilot program, as easily we felt the group that worked on this, to virtual engagement. This is, this is much more effectively communicated and worked on and practiced in face-to-face communication. And if we knew for sure that that wasn't going to be possible again, I think we might have explored a virtual kind of version of it. But always expecting that we were going to get back to the ability to have these face-to-face conversations with our patients in clinic and with each other as colleagues, the decision really was to sort of wait till that could happen before we took this to to a lot more other clinics for for more piloting and, and, and implementation. But in the meantime, because everybody is so connected within Canada and the bleeding disorders community, and I don't mean just the professionals, the patients as well, we're kind of spread like wildfire. And these tools were shared widely on email groups within discipline-specific groups. Our nurses group meets with each other, or the physiotherapy group meets with each other, and then there are cross-discipline meetings that happen. The patients are in close contact with each other, not just within one clinic or within one province, but across the country. And we found that patients were saying, hey, you know what? My clinic is now asking me at my, at my annual visits or when I go into the clinic, they're asking me about whether I have questions related to sexuality and sexual health. Is your clinic doing that? And then we had you know, patients in clinics where that wasn't happening saying, I've heard from my friend or my cousin or whoever it is who lives in Calgary that this is what they're discussing with him at clinic. Could we talk about that? 
So uh, it, it really took on a bit of an organic expansion in addition to what we might do as a formal program rolling the pilot out further. That's neat to hear. And for patient and caregiver and partner listeners out there, we'll have a link to the article in the program notes. And to, to Greg's point, simply referencing in the clinic awareness that there's been some study and research done into sexual issues and tools and health and, and strategies. And to ask your, your clinicians, have you heard about this? That might be a way to open up the conversation without saying, I'd like to talk about my sexual health, please, just to just ask, are you aware of this research? I also want to ask as a, as a final question, Greg, and thank you again so much for coming on. You know, we, I don't know that we've talked about sexual health much in the five and a half years that we've been doing this podcast. So I can't say you made the point early about the first 10 years of your career and not talking about sexual health and that feeling normal. Well, I can say we've been doing podcasts for quite a long time and we don't really talk much about it either. So, you know, guilty in company. But my final question for you is about sexual health in general and for the patients and the caregivers and the, and the partners who are listening, are there any resources, websites, or places you may direct people? You mentioned your book, which we will also include a link to in the program notes because specifically for people with bleeding disorders, what an extraordinary resource. But is there anywhere else that you would encourage people to visit, to learn a little more about how to engage with their sexual health, how to bring that into HCP and HTC visits? Right. The best places to go, and I mean, I'm most familiar with what's available sort of within the Canadian community here in terms of the resources available through the Canadian Hemophilia Society, the patient um, you know, organization that has provincial chapters. This would be the National Hemophilia Foundation equivalent, you know, if we're talking about the United States, where there are state, you know, chapters and, and offices and affiliates of the, of the larger national organization. And all of these entities have educational resources available on their websites in their educational materials section. And a lot of the sexual health information that is available can be found on those pages. And if not available as a download, those would be the contacts I would suggest people go to is make contact with the NHF. If you're in Canada, make contact with the CHS and say that this is what you're looking for is you're looking for information on sexuality and sexual health. And those entities are really well positioned to source it for you. There's, of course, the research studies, mine and others that are available, you know, through online uh, journals and, and, and whatnot. But if that's really not what you're looking for, you know, perhaps as a, as a patient or a caregiver or a partner, and you're looking more for, for, you know, resources aimed directly at you as opposed to research-based studies, I would say that the best place to go to, the safest place and the best place to go to is your, your patient organization offices and tell them what you're looking for if it isn't on their website and they have a lot of resources to be able to bring to bear to find it for you. Well, Greg Blamey, physiotherapist at the HTC in Winnipeg, Canada, and researcher, the lead researcher and author on sexual issues in people with hemophilia, awareness and strategies for overcoming communication barriers. As someone with hemophilia and as someone who has sex and has sexual health needs, I appreciate the work you've done to normalize this topic and would invite you to come back on anytime if there's an inflection point in your work or a story that's particularly emblematic of where we are or something that could use a little more attention in this area. Now that we're connected, feel free to ping and I'd be happy to have you back on and continue this discussion at any time. I really thank you for the opportunity, Patrick. And if if, if I had one message for, for all parties out there who are involved in, in this wonderful world of, of bleeding disorders that I've been so fortunate to be part of for you know, nearly 30 years now, and I really do feel like I've been invited in by the patient population, which is pretty special. 
it's a very special feeling because I really do, because, because I've been involved for so long and I've gotten to know the patients and the families you know, very, very well, I feel quite fortunate to have been invited in. And, and this is a, a very intimate part of everybody's life. And I, I'm very cognizant of that. And it, it's something that I treasure to be allowed to, to help somebody with something that is so intimate and so much a part of everyday enjoyment of life. And if I could give everybody one piece of advice, it's just that please don't make any assumptions that somebody doesn't want to talk about something unless you've asked. And please do everything you can to, for the caregivers, for the clinic staff, there needs to be an environment of permission. There needs to be the message clearly sent that absolutely anything and everything that you want to talk about is fair game. And it doesn't mean that you have to talk to the physiotherapist about your sexual health issues. It doesn't mean you have to talk to the doctor. We are very clear about the fact that we want you to speak to whichever member of the team you feel most comfortable talking to. And you talk to us in the environment that you feel most comfortable talking to us. If that happens to be a comprehensive care clinic, that's where it is. If that's in a private office visit when they come to see me for their knee bleed rehab, that's where it might be. These conversations need to be allowed to come up at any time with any one of us knowing then that if I don't have the tools to help you, I'm going to find the person that does have the tools to help you. It's really about making sure that there's permission to have the conversation. Once that's in place, everything else comes much more easily. That's great. We'll leave it there. Thank you so much, Greg. Thank you, Patrick. Oh, I loved Greg. He is going to become a regular. I think so. Um, Listeners, I'm interested to hear what you thought about that conversation. And uh, we'll put a link, obviously, in the program notes for the paper so you guys can read on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just something we don't talk about a lot. And I just thought, I, I thought it was fantastic. Hopefully we'll see him at like conferences and stuff. Yeah. I'm also expecting a copy of, of his book oh, uh, that he references right. coming this way at some point in the near future. So maybe we can do a little fireside reading yeah. and, look, and we can show the pictures, all the yep. different ways that you can engage sexually. I love that, it. that would be a fun bloodstream live stream. <laughs> I think everybody would be really comfortable with that. That would everyone would love that. Let's put that one on Facebook too. Ever all the moms would love that. It would go over big. Yeah, huge. Yeah. It would be it's gonna be it's gonna be great. So let's move on. Let's go to our next segment, which is Let's Talk with Joshua let's Sterling. Talk. I love Let's Talk. I do too. It's going to be great. On today's segment, Josh talks about growing and evolving as a human and the idea of taking that first step towards doing the thing you want to do, but you feel like you can't. Mm. Feels deep. Wow, that was a big, you had a thing there. This is a segment for you, I mean, you you want to do it, but you feel like you can't, like you're holding yourself back. What are you holding back? (laughs) That's a whole nother show. Amy, let's talk. No! Let's Talk, a partnership between Bloodstream Media and Sanofi aims to create an environment where we can have open, honest conversations about mental health in the bleeding disorder community. Let's Talk strives to shed light on the topics that are often invisible and not spoken of in the community and shares tips on how to care for your or a loved one's mental health. If you or someone you know has experienced feelings that have impacted your mental health, talk to your healthcare provider and find educational resources at Let's Talk MH. Sanofi is proud to sponsor this podcast segment because they believe that each one of us has a story. Visit shareyourwhy.com to meet the Sanofi core team and hear from them and members of the community about their story and passion for the hemophilia community. Now let's get to this week's Let's Talk segment.
I started painting my nails in December of last year. My wife was on a trip to Mexico for her 40th birthday, and I thought, what the heck, I might as well try it out. I started with three little black dots, almost like a little snowman getting smaller towards the top of my nail, and then I covered that with clear nail polish. I immediately liked it. It was like a tattoo, of which I have a few and I want a lot more of, so I kept it, and I wore it home for the holidays, nervous about what kinds of comments I would get over Christmas. I had felt this feeling before when I came home with my first tattoo, and my second, and my third, (laughs) when I came home from 15 weeks of studying in Europe wearing a kilt. In fact, almost any time I didn't wear a t-shirt and jeans, I felt it. This completely unbalanced feeling of pride about my ability to express myself, and the sheer terror of someone noticing and making a mean comment. If I'm being honest, this is how I was navigating the world for 36 years. But last year, after finding the right therapist to help me explore why I was feeling this way, it all changed. Let's talk. I think for me, when I'm offered a new opportunity, I really, I try to jump at it as much as possible. This is the voice of Corey, who was interviewed at HFA earlier this year. Something I I talked about earlier was climbing a mountain to go to a friend's wedding recently. And that was certainly a kind of a scary and daunting proposition. But I know that through my own sort of preparation and training and over the past couple of years that I, I thought that was something I could do. I knew that there was going to be a, a good support team around me just in, in my friends being there. There was about 20, 25 people that went up the mountain that day and everybody knew I had a, a bleeding disorder and they knew the reality that I, you know, something possibly could happen, but everybody had my back in that moment. When I packed for the holidays, I brought all of my new shirts, bright, busy, loud patterns. I had been building out a new wardrobe for a few months and experimenting with what I identified as a more feminine style. I packed vests, hats, a few of my favorite pants. I hadn't seen anyone in years because of this pandemic we're all so sick of, and I wanted to dress in a way that said, hey, look, this is the new me, or the next me, the the now me. This is a step in the right direction for me. And then as a backup, I packed a few t-shirts and jeans. Courtney wasn't there to build up my confidence. I didn't have my safety net, my support. But I was being brave anyway, and she was going to meet me in New Jersey the following week. So this is who I want to be. So just be, right? So a few days later, in one of my loudest shirts, a vest and a big old hat, I go to visit my grandma. My grandfather passed away during the pandemic, and I wanted to make sure to spend some time with her on this trip. She's a watercolor artist by trade and has been painting for 80 some odd years. She's always told me bizarre stories and encouraged me to draw and paint and build fairy houses in the woods with tree bark. Her home and especially her cabin in New Hampshire are treasure troves of weirdness, dolls and skeletons, abstract paintings, bright 70s wallpaper, carvings, miniatures and photographs. So many photographs. I scanned about 500 when I was there, and I can safely say there are about 20,000 more, dating all the way back to the early 1800s. My grandfather was into genealogy. I'm getting off topic a little bit, but we were in her kitchen when she noticed my nails. She said, now, Joshua, I want to ask you something here. Why are you wearing nail polish? My face flushed red. My heart leapt into my throat. And in a panic, I said, because I'm weird. And without skipping a beat, she grabbed both of my wrists and said, no, no, honey, we're not weird. We're different. But that's because we're artists. 
whenever I'm doing something, I, I try to not do it alone. I think that's a, a really important thing to remember when doing any, any kind of new scary activity is if you go at it alone, there's a lot that can go wrong. But if you have other people around you who, who know your situation and who can lift you up if you're sliding down a little bit, that's super important. In January, I went from three little dots on my fingernails to full color. I stuck with blues for months, but each time I got them done, I got a little bit braver and a little bit braver. And with this evolution came a more bold expression through my wardrobe. My confidence and my style were evolving. Hand bleached overalls, cutting the sleeves off of shirts to make them into vests, a leopard print jacket. Just hearing that little bit of support from someone I love on the other side of the country, someone who doesn't get to see me every single day and wasn't shocked to see the person I'm growing into lifted me up so much. And I wouldn't have gotten that if I didn't come to my grandmother's house in full form. The other key part about trying new things is you have to be realistic and and know your own body and what you're capable of. And unfortunately, a lot of people with bleeding disorders probably don't get as much experience in terms of their limits in certain ways. And in other ways, they, they know their limits far better than probably anybody else on this planet, but not in every way. And I, I think without trying some of these new activities and taking baby steps towards them, it's really hard to know what your limits are. So last year, I was afraid to be seen. And this year, I'm taking steps every day to express myself in a way that feels good for me. There have been a lot of baby steps, and I know what my limits are, but I'm not afraid to push those boundaries bit by bit as I strive for my full potential. Right now, my nails have sparkles. Right now, I'm not afraid to look at jackets and sweaters in the women's section. And also right now, I get a few hateful comments about my nail polish on TikTok whenever I post a video, but they don't bother me because the people in my life who support me expressing myself the way that I want to are the only people whose opinions really matter to me. And it gives me an opportunity to reach out to those hateful commenters to let them know that having a little bit of color on my nails isn't going to hurt them or really affect them in any way. We all deserve to have equal opportunities at happiness, to have control over our own bodies, the way we dress, the tattoos we get or don't get, to dye our hair or not dye our hair, to make choices about how our bodies are treated by medical professionals and to have access to the same medicine, care and procedures, the same rights, the same freedoms. The world is a scary place right now, and we all have obstacles in front of us, some much larger than others. Whatever your mountain is right now, whatever you're afraid of trying but know deep down that it's what you desire most, I want to encourage you to find a little bit of support, even if it's a 90-year-old woman on the other side of the country, and take a baby step towards what you want today. Because we aren't going to live forever, so we might as well try to truly live for ourselves while we still have time left. Thank you to Corey for sharing your story, and thank you to Amy and Patrick for giving me a place to talk about these things. Talking can be so healing. If you want access to some great mental health resources or you want to check out the film Let's Talk Mental Health that kicked off this whole podcast segment, I encourage you to check out letstalkmh.com and click resources. Next episode, Jessica will dive a little bit deeper into the concept of growth and development in her segment, The Well. And as for us, let's talk next month. Once again, Joshua Sterling Bragg, Mm. thanks for delivering a phenomenal, Mm. personal, compelling segment. And thanks, Corey, as well, for your contributions to today's Let's Talk Mental Health segment, again, made possible by Sanofi. Thank you, Sanofi, for your support there. 
And that, Amy, brings us to the last segment of today's episode, which leads me to ask the only question I have remaining, which is what's coming up next on Bloodstream? What's happening next month? Oh my gosh. Next month is August, everybody. That is true. You are a walking calendar, Bordeaux. August of 2022? It seems like it has flown by. We have a great episode uh, coming up in two weeks. Reverend Cassandra Campos McDonald is going to be back. She has been uh, part of the last two seasons of The Pain Pod, and she has some updates about her mental health and pain journey, she her sure chronic does. pain she journey. She teased them in an email. She teased them <laughs> in an email. And Patrick said, do you just want to like talk about it on the phone or is this for the podcast? And she said it was for the podcast. She's a blogger. She's a podcaster. She's a content creator. She's a reverend. She knows about speeches. Like she, yeah, she's like, no, no, no. This is content, buddy. And I was like, yeah, it is. Let's do it, Kaz. So if you guys want to be uh, really like, on it, listen to her two episodes of The Pain Pod, and then you'll be like set for next week. And The Pain Pod season four, which only recently ended, by the way. So Phenomenal, so fun. Like actually like really good. I would would check that out if you haven't already. Mm. And that's it. That's That's all I got. That's all we got? That's all we got. Great. We'll be at the BDC. I'm sure there'll be some stuff related to that that you'll hear about. But for now, that is all for this episode. Reminder to subscribe to the Bloodstream Podcast wherever you listen. Share this episode, or really any episode, with family, friends, colleagues, co-workers, people you come across in your day-to-day life, neighbors you haven't spoken to but have been looking for an opportunity to introduce yourself to. Tell them about Bloodstream. I don't know why that's the best idea, but go for it. Do Who it. knows? And if you haven't already, for the love of the... L- <laughs> please subscribe to the Bloodstream <laughs> Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Also, y'all, do you have a bleeding disorders or health topic you'd like to hear us discuss more? Or is there an expert or a guest that you're just dying to hear from? Want to inquire about storytelling and casting opportunities for Bloodstream's podcast or Believe Limited's films? If, if any of that is true, please email us <laughs> at mailbagofbloodstreammedia.com or connect with us on social media. You'll find Bloodstream Media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find myself and Patrick James Lynch on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're both also on LinkedIn. I have not checked my LinkedIn in like 17 days. You're admitting that on mic. Admitting it on mic, and I'm just going to say right now that I should actually go check it. Well, shout out to all the committed LinkedIn users out there. And for this week, Amy Board, you are not one of them. We've got to get you back <laughs> committed LinkedIn user. I got to get Ford. back in the game. Come on. Well, mm. anyway, I am your host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am your other host, Amy Board. And until next time, take self-care of yourself. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.